0: The book of Luke will be in the very last chapter of the book of Luke, found in the beginning phases of the New Testament of your Bible. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, will be our text this morning. We gathered Friday night in this room, and we set ourselves into the moment of the crucifixion of Christ on the cross. It was a somber evening. But it was also an evening of celebration because we know what happened on that cross and for why it happened. The atonement for our sins. On Friday, as we looked upon that cross, we saw the final words of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Luke tells us that having said this, he breathed his last and he died. There was a Roman centurion looking on in that moment and as he saw the manner in which Jesus Christ carried himself on this cross and the way in which he died, this Roman centurion says, certainly this man was innocent. There were great crowds around this cross and on this hill looking upon this event. And Luke tells us in chapter 23 that when the crowd saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. Sign of grief and anguish over what they had witnessed. Jesus had specific followers there that day. And Luke tells us that they stood at a distance Watching these things, in shock and awe, watching Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom they hoped in for the redemption of Israel, dead in the most shameful way. Luke tells us that it was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was going to begin at sundown. And there's no work on the Sabbath, but there's also no handling of corpses on the Sabbath. So they had to quickly get Jesus' body buried. And so we meet Joseph of Arimathea who took Jesus' body with permission and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. And we're finally told in Luke twenty three fifty six of some women who were amongst Jesus' disciples. They went with Joseph of Arimathea and they saw the tomb and how he was laid. And then they returned and they prepared spices and ointments with a plan to return on the first day of the week after the Sabbath of Saturday so that they could rightly prepare his body for long-term burial. That was the plan. but their plans were thwarted. We get to see here that Jesus Christ is dead. We understand that on this Sabbath day of Saturday, He lays in the grave. His disciples are hidden behind closed doors and windows. They've lost all hope. They've gained total fear and despair rules in their hearts. While there, Jesus lay dead, resting on the Sabbath. Resting in the grave on the Sabbath. But we come to Luke chapter 24, verse 1. Follow along with me. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter, Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. In Luke chapter 24, we get four venues given to us. Where we see different resurrection moments on the first day of Jesus' resurrection. This is the first one. It's the moment that these women are at the empty tomb where the stone has been rolled away, where Peter runs and looks in and he sees linen cloths but no body because he's resurrected. These women, ready to prepare his body for long term burial, have no body (laughs) to prepare. They witness this empty tomb. They run to the eleven. Not the twelve. Judas has betrayed Jesus. Judas went and hanged himself. There's only eleven. Matthias would come in a few days. But there's eleven apostles. The women also go and tell, Luke tells us, tell all the rest. I think this is Acts chapter 1 verse 15. The 120 disciples that are in an upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to be given. But amongst all of these, there is a general consensus of unbelief. They take the report of the women as an idle tale. And they do not believe the words. Let's go now, along with Luke, to the second venue. It's the road to Emmaus. We pick up in verse 13. That very day... And they stood still, looking sad. Looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed in deed and word before god and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him that happened but we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem israel Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women of the company, they amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And He, Jesus, He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures (laughs) the things concerning Himself. We've got two disciples, two of these twelve and one hundred and twenty. One of them we get the name, it's Cleopas. We don't know the other one. They encounter the resurrected Jesus and the text says very clearly, their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. They have no clue who it is that walks amongst them. We are told by Luke that they had sad faces. Why were their faces sad? Well, as I preached last Sunday in the triumphal entry, they hoped for peace. They wanted what you and I want more than anything else in this world. We want peace. And they had hoped for it. And they even said we had hoped that He was the one who would redeem us. But He's not because He's dead, they say. Just imagine. Jesus tells them they've got foolish minds and slow hearts. Calls it like it is. Why did they have foolish minds and Slow hearts. Why? You know, Jesus has told these men three times before this event that these things would happen. Three times, vividly clear. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9, a few pages back to your left. Jesus gives these guys three chances, three passes. At the events that they've just witnessed. In Luke 9.21. Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Saying, quote, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. And be killed and on the third day raised. That's clear, isn't it? But they've got foolish minds and slow hearts. And they don't get it. Look down in Luke 9.43. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing. Jesus said to his disciples. Quote. Let these words sink into your ears. Man he's telegraphing it here isn't he? Let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask Him about the saying. Foolish minds and slow hearts. Turn to Luke 18, the last warning. In Luke 18, verse 31. And taking the twelve, Luke says... clear isn't it he will rise but Luke tells us in 34 but they understood none of these things this saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said foolish minds slow hearts unbelief it's really amazing Back over to chapter 24, they literally repeated Jesus' prophecies. Look in verse 19 of 24. They say, This Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. They are repeating exactly what Jesus said to them on three occasions. Except for one key phrase. They stopped short. They stopped with a dead Jesus. And they did not get that we've got a living Christ. They left out, and on the third day he will rise. Right there is the foolish mind. Right there is the slow heart. Right there is the unbelief. They did not believe the most important event in the history of all history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to know we live in a Christian world. I'm talking about the church world that we live in. We live in a Christian world that really and truly has sadly de the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think the church has done this unknowingly. There's not been a mission upon, among people to say, you know, we've got to squelch this resurrection talk. It's too miraculous. Let's, let's stop at the cross. No one's consciously said that. But we as a church, we as the people of God, over the decades at least of the last century have really emphasized the cross of Christ to the detriment of the resurrection of Christ. And I'm here to tell you this morning that if we've got a dead Jesus, and we focus on the dead Jesus, we are a people that are not proclaiming the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Because He is risen indeed. I think what captures us is the trauma and the drama And the emotion and the horror of the cross of Christ. And it is all of those things, to be sure. And it captures our minds and our imaginations. And we are going, as we look at that, we're going, wow, I should be on that cross. But there's one who's on that cross instead of me. And we get wrapped up in that. Let's be careful, I'm not against crosses and emblems, but everywhere we look, we've got crosses, don't we? We don't wear chains with with, uh, medallions on them of empty tombs. We don't have an empty tomb etched into the tile floor out in the lobby, do we? It's cross-centered, everything's cross-centered. And Paul says, I preach nothing but Christ and Him crucified. That is right to do, but we must not stop short of the resurrection on the third day. Or as we read in 1 Corinthians, we are a people to be most pitied. Many times people focus on the cross and really what ends up happening is Jesus was this moral teacher who died a martyr's death. And I want you to know he is that plus he's a resurrected God in the flesh bearing flesh to this day, seated at the right hand of God the Father, soon to come again on a white horse with a sword coming out of His mouth to judge His enemies. His blood-drenched robe. We need to proclaim the whole gospel and not stop at the cross. We need to tell about a dead Jesus in a tomb. But we have got to quickly get To a resurrected Savior who defeated sin on the cross and death in the grave by rising on the third day. These men cited Jesus' words exactly except for, and on the third day be raised. Their eyes, it says, were kept from recognizing Him. The saying, it says, was hidden from them. They didn't grasp what was said. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Why? Why? Come on, guys. It's because of their sinfulness. They're that sinful that they're that blind and that deaf and that dull hearted. Their sinfulness prevented them to comprehend the most important truth ever. Their sinfulness prevented them from asking Jesus for further explanation. They were afraid to ask him. It's pride. These men did not have their minds set on the scriptures. Let's don't follow in their footsteps. They had their minds not set on these scriptures. They had their minds set on their circumstances. Why? They had hoped that He was the one that would redeem Israel. From what? Roman occupation. We need to be set free from these Romans. We need our city back. We need our temple restored to Christ and uh, God-centered worship. We need all of these things. Here's the Messiah. He's going to provide it. Uh Uh-oh, He's dead and he's buried and there's a really big stone rolled across his grave we had hoped but it was a hope lost when in actuality Christ did redeem Israel for eternity not from Roman occupation but from the occupation of sin and death that ruled and reigned in their bodies He did redeem them. They just don't see it yet. I just pause as I look at this. Can you imagine if the resurrection didn't happen and the state of these guys' lives for the rest of their days? What a miserable existence. But it's going to change for them just a moment. It's going to get better for them. The text says that Jesus had a solution for them. His solution was to literally take the Scriptures and wash them with God's words. Luke says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. He took the Old Testament and he bathed them in it. What did he say? What might he have said to these two on the road to Emmaus? Well, I took a stab at it because I think I'm safe in doing this. He interpreted in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So I've got Jesus's speech and teaching right here. He didn't go outside of these words. So I think Jesus said, hey guys, you know in Genesis, early in that book that Moses wrote, there's there's this moment where God speaks to Adam and Eve. And He says, I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and the offspring of the woman. And the offspring of the serpent is going to crush the heel of the offspring of the woman. But the offspring of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. I am the offspring of the woman. That's me. And that pictured my death in the striking of my heel on the cross and my resurrection in the crushing of the head of that serpent in rising from the dead. He went on later in Genesis to this flood account. The whole world, guys, was flooded. And you remember there was eight people and a bunch of animals put into an ark. And that ark carried these people safely through the judgment waters of God against the sins of the world. I am the ark. They were safe in me. Later in Genesis, Isaac, Abraham's only son, was to be offered to God that offering of the only son of Abraham Isaac pointed to me God's only son who was offered in in the same moment Isaac was prevented from being sacrificed because there was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns and that ram was sacrificed in the place of Isaac as a substitute I am also that ram substituting for Isaac Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob put his head on a rock and fell asleep and had a dream of a ladder stretching from earth to heaven. I am that ladder. Jesus even said so in the book of John. You go to the end of the book of Genesis and this Joseph character who was thrown into a pit and pulled out of a pit and sold into Egypt so that the people of Israel might be preserved through famine. I am Joseph. I, the one, went before all so that all might be spared death through a substitute. How about the book of Exodus? I am Moses leading Israel out of bondage through Egypt and the judgment waters of God as the Red Sea was parted. Moses prefigured me, I'm greater than him. Or how about later in Exodus? I am the rock of Horeb that was spoken to by Moses and living water came out. That was me. In Leviticus, Leviticus is a bloody book. All of the blood of the sacrificial animals shed, prefigured, my blood shed for you on the cross last Friday. Or how about the book of Numbers? Moses took a bronze serpent and fixed it on a pole and raised it up. And if people looked at that bronze servant, they were saved from death. I am the bronze serpent. Deuteronomy, I am the prophet like Moses that God promised to, to come. In Ruth, this man named Boaz that redeemed his kinsman. I am the ultimate kinsman redeemer. I have redeemed you too, my kinsman. First Samuel, David was anointed king, but he was not yet crowned. He defeats Israel's greatest enemy, Goliath, that represents sin and bondage. I am David who defeated Goliath. In 1 Kings 3, David has a son named Solomon. He's wiser than any man ever before or ever since. And I want you to know, too, guys, something greater than Solomon is here. In Ezra, Ezra is a man who set his heart to study the law of God, to do the law of God, and to teach the law of God. Well, I did all of that to the ultimate degree. You remember Shechaniah after the people confessed their sins of intermarriage, Shechaniah said, but there is still hope for Israel. Well, I am the ultimate hope for Israel. Early in the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 2, I am the king of Zion. I am the son who was begotten of the Lord in that passage. In Psalm 16, I am the holy one whose soul wasn't abandoned in Sheol. My body did not see corruption. That was me. I am before you living today. Psalm 22:1. 1. David said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You heard me utter those words on Friday. They prefigured me. David said, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You saw men do that for me on Friday. David said, for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. That ultimately foreshadowed me. David said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Those are the last words you heard from me on that cross on Friday night. Oh, gentlemen, the Psalms. Are concerning me. In Isaiah I am the child that was born. I am the son that was given. I am the wonderful counselor. The mighty God. The everlasting father. I am the prince of peace. Spoken of in Isaiah. I am the suffering servant. Later on in Isaiah. Who was wounded for your transgressions. And crushed for your inequities. That is me gentlemen. That is me. In Jeremiah, I am the righteous branch who has executed justice and righteousness in the land. In Daniel, I am the one like a son of man who has given dominion and glory in a kingdom. In Zechariah, I am the king coming to you, righteous and having salvation Is me, mounted on a donkey's colt. That's me last Sunday, riding into Jerusalem. In Malachi, I am the Lord whom you seek. I have come into my temple. And what might they have said when he said, hey, consider Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so was the Son of Man three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Oh, Cleopas and sir, something greater than Jonah is here. And He went on and on and on. I don't know if you know this. Maybe you were keeping track. I just gave you 30. (laughs) 30 accounts of Jesus Christ prefigured in the Old Testament. 30! Just like that. What if Jesus spent three hours walking them through the Old Testament? How many more are there? Jesus' point is... All the scriptures are about me. And I want you to see that what was said long ago happened in these last three days, this last week. It all happened, guys. Well, this was on the road to Emmaus. Now we go to the third venue, the house in Emmaus, verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread, and he blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Hmm. Their eyes were opened. They saw and they believed. They recognized Him. And when did it happen? It happened when Jesus Christ took bread, blessed it, and broke it. Sound familiar? We did this Friday night together. they they go and tell their fellow disciples how he was known to them by the breaking of bread guys we saw this thursday night last he is risen indeed you know the lord's supper when we take that meal it should be the same for us this is why we do it so often it's in the breaking of blood and the remembering the shed breaking of bread and the remembrance of the shed blood of Jesus Christ that our eyes are opened and we recognize Him just a little bit more each time, I pray. Jesus told us to do this often as we remember Him so that we would recognize Him through and through. We remember the body and the blood of Christ during the Lord's Supper so that we recognize Him and what He did for us. I believe that's why these two guys recognized Him. They recognized Him by His work. His work of substitution. His work of His body being broken in their place. Just as the Scriptures had foretold. Our fellowship as a church family around the Lord's table builds our faith, yes, individually, but it builds our faith congregationally. And the breaking of bread amongst us, even this last Friday night, should be a purpose, a purposed time where our faith is built up. There's significance in the breaking of bread in the Christian church, isn't there? The text says their hearts burned while He opened the Scriptures. So we've got Lord's Supper, breaking of bread imagery here, but we've got that coupled with the Scriptures. It takes both. Can you imagine these two men, as they listen to Christ, exposit the Old Testament books... (laughs) And by the way, if Christ exposited the Old Testament, we ought to exposit the Bible from this pulpit, hadn't we not? That's how He proclaimed the truth to these men. And that's how we proclaim the truth to one another. Their hearts burned as Jesus explained Himself in the Old Testament. The Word of God refines our hearts and renews our minds and causes us, To burn. As I surveyed the Old Testament this last week to come up with those 30. And as I even preached it this morning, I want you to know, I I did. My heart burned just a little bit. I wish it burned more. How about you? When we opened the Scriptures, or when I just recited 30 counts of Jesus being foretold of in the Old Testament... Did your heart burn maybe just a little bit? Did you ease forward just a little? Did you lean in and go, wow, that's probably what he said. And wow, you mean that was pre-telling us of Christ? Did your heart burn when, wow, he was faithful in proclaiming it in the Old Testament, God was. And he was faithful in fulfilling it in the New Testament, Gospels Christ was. Did your heart not burn a little and say, wait, he's called everything. And everything that happened to him happened to the letter according to the law that Moses and the prophets wrote long ago. Did your heart burn just a little? I pray that it did. I prayed all week, Lord, burn their hearts with these truths. If it didn't, I'm going to give you some instruction. Keep reading. Don't stop reading. Read more. And pray more. Father, burn my heart with these truths. Open my eyes. Let me recognize Christ as I read of Him in the Bible, whether it be Old Testament or New Testament. You keep reading and praying. And that burn will come. I promise. God wants it. Well, we move to the last venue in verse 36. We go to the disciples' quarters. Verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See My hands and My feet, that it is I Myself? Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, that's Luke's way of saying it was too good to believe. When they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? Oh! <laughs> And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate before them. Thank you, God, for understanding how simple we are. And we need basics like this to believe. It's a good God to eat fish in front of us. Isn't he? The disciples are in hiding for fear of what will happen to them next. And Jesus, out of nowhere, appears and says, Peace to you. On Friday, hope was lost, fear was gained, dread ruled, peace was craved. Saturday was a dark, dreary, dismal day, but here on Sunday, they get what they most want. They get peace from the Prince of Peace in Isaiah chapter 9, Jesus Christ. There's a major emphasis here, if you just look at the amount of verses Luke dedicates to, to explaining that Jesus has got a body, we need to take note of that. <laughs> this is a bodily resurrection. This is not a spirit Jesus. This is bodily resurrected Jesus Christ. In verse 39, Jesus says, "See my hands and feet, touch me and see," and he took fish and ate before them. This is a bodily resurrection. It's very important to the Christian faith. Jesus says a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. I am not spirit. I am God in the flesh. Just as I was before I died. Just imagine that heart was still. The blood was not moving. The lungs were deflated. The mind was not working. But now... He's living again. And Christ occupies this resurrected body to this very day. The scriptures tell us he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he will be in this resurrected body when he comes again. To judge those who do not believe in him. And to gather those who are his people. And He will reside in a body for all of eternity. And we too will be resurrected should we be dead the day that He comes. And we will be resurrected in bodies. And we will live in the new heavens and the new earth. Not on clouds playing harps, wearing halos and having wings. We will be in the new heavens and the new earth. Recreated just as the Garden of Eden was from the beginning. And we will be in fellowship and harmony with our God for all of eternity. With no effects of sin. No disease, no aches, no grays, no relationship strife, no economic woes, no tears. Joyful worshiping, just as we sang all this morning about the one who was slain and resurrected. It is through the resurrected body of Jesus Christ that we have peace with God. No resurrection. No peace. Well, I want to finish with the Great Commission. This is Luke's version starting in 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of My Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I I, I want to focus on two things here. The first one is, Jesus says, must be fulfilled. Jesus said earlier it was necessary that these things happen. Look at verse 7. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified and on the third day rise. Look at verse 26. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? In verse 44 here. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Must and Necessary. Why was it necessary? Why must these things happen? Well, in the beginning, God created man in his own image and likeness. God put man in the garden and God gave man one negative command. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And we know from the writings of Moses that man ate from that tree. We know from the writings of Paul in Romans chapter 5 that all men, all of us, come from Adam and Eve. And we have inherited from Adam and Eve a nature of sin. It is quite natural for us to defy the commands of God. And we know that because of that, when we defy the commands of God, the penalty for that is death. I want you to lean in here, especially if you do not understand Christianity and you don't know Jesus Christ. I want you to lean in right here and listen to me. We in this room are sinners. We have defied God and broken His commands. And we deserve for that, death. And it was necessary for Jesus Christ to come and He must suffer and die and rise again so that He could be a a suitable substitute for us and pay the wages of our sin, which is death. For you see, Jesus Christ came and He never sinned. He lived the life that Adam was designed by God to live. He kept every commandment of God to the perfection. He lived the life that you and I were designed to live, but we didn't. And yet He died on the cross. That does not seem right. But in God's great plan it is. It was necessary that He die in our place even though He knew no sin. And God's design is that if we look at Christ on that cross... And we believe that he died a sinless life in our place. God the Father will look at us and say, "Your sons are forgiven. your sins are forgiven because my son died in your place." He knew no sin. You did, but he died, therefore you won't. If you believe. And if you believe that he didn't stay dead, that he rose on the third day. So it is necessary that there be a substitute for you and for me. So that we might have hope and redemption for all of eternity. There's also this phraseology that Luke uses in verses 46 and 47. Thus it is written, the Christ should suffer And on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. There's something we've got to do with this truth of Christ crucified and resurrection. We should, we must proclaim it to all the nations. For in it is the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we are commissioned here by Jesus Christ to proclaim the truth of the necessity of His death, burial, and resurrection to the world so that the world might have redemption and hope and peace with God. It's not an option. And this morning we have proclaimed this truth right here from this pulpit. And this afternoon and all next week and in the coming days we must proclaim this truth to the people that we encounter down in town. And around the globe. We should, because it was necessary for their salvation. Are you a Christian here this morning? Uh, If you're here this morning and you profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you find your very identity in these events. We're we're having several conversations amongst us these days about baptism. We hope to come before you soon with some baptisms. Many are talking about this. I want you to listen to Romans 6. Here's what Paul says about all of this to tie it all together. Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? There's our picture in baptism of going down into the water, dying. He goes on to say, we were buried therefore with Him in baptism into death. There's the picture of going horizontal. And then he finishes by saying, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I want you to know this morning that if you're a Christian and you've been baptized, you have proclaimed that you have died with Christ, You've been buried with Him, and you've been resurrected. And you walk new now. And you will walk new later forever in a resurrected body. So this resurrection has personal implications for us right now in our relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't understand this, or you've not yet come to proclaim this is true for you, I urge you to consider the necessity of Jesus Christ dying in your place and rising again. It is your only hope that you believe in that truth so that you might have peace with God because your eternity hinges on where you come down on this matter. So this morning we have gathered around the greatest truth ever proclaimed. No human being has ever heard anything greater than what has been said today. And it is not because I said it. It's because God said it. We have done what Paul did in 1 Corinthians fifteen three. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. It is true. It happened. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You for the truth that You have revealed to us this morning. I pray, Father, that there would be no one that would leave this room not recognizing Jesus Christ. I pray that by the opening of the Scriptures and showing us how all the Scriptures concern Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and resurrected, I pray that by washing us with those words, You would grant us belief and salvation and eternal life. I also pray, Father, that You've been honored by the worship of your people this morning and what we've offered to you. For we do in all of this say to you what a great God you are to provide the substitution of your Son, Jesus Christ, for our sins. Father, convict hearts to believe and use mouths to spread this good news as it should be until Christ, the resurrected Christ, comes again as promised. And we pray this in His name. Amen.